Thanks, Holly. Well, good evening and welcome to church. I'm Rowan, and I bet you're glad you came tonight after hearing that part of God's Word, right? You're like, whoa, it just feels heavy. I feel as I'm about to explain it a bit more and help us to understand what it's saying, the heaviness and weightiness of God's Word. So why don't we pray right now that we won't just push it aside, but that we'll hear it as it really is, that this is God speaking to us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come here tonight, we are so thankful that you have given us your word. As we feel its weightiness, as we, we look at the things that in the grand scheme of things that are huge, death, hell, judgment, we ask that, we would let, that you would make your word be a light unto our feet, that you would help us by your spirit to understand it and to, to recognize that your word is good and it is good for us. We pray you'd shift our expectations and the way we view ourselves and the world tonight to be in line with your view. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the previous church I was a pastor in um, was a large multicultural church, but it was a Protestant Reformed Evangelical church. Now, I tell you that because it's important to know. Uh, Protestant in that it wasn't Catholic, uh, Reformed in that the followed the, the beliefs of the Reformers who moved away from the Roman Catholic Church, and, and Evangelical because the word of the gospel was center of all we were doing. And it's very similar to what we are here tonight. But I tell you that because I want to tell you about one of the congregation members of that church who was a practicing Roman Catholic priest. Can you not? We had a practicing Roman Catholic priest coming regularly, uh, even though he had his own parish that he was teaching in as a priest, he would come regularly to our services most weeks. And this is really kind of intriguing for me because my boss at that church had written probably the most popular book in Christian circles against Roman Catholicism. Like he'd written a book of how he left Roman Catholicism and how Roman Catholicism did not teach what the Bible taught, right? That Roman Catholicism was wrong, I'm like, what's this guy doing here? Now, I remember the first time we chatted, I was early on in my role there as a pastor. I was freshly minted out of college and kind of keen and wanting to help people to understand more about Jesus. And this guy wanted to make himself known and let me know his day job. He's kind of a Catholic priest. Um, and so I'm there, he's told me this, and I'm wanting to make him feel welcome, but I'm trying to answer the question that's in all of our minds at this point, why are you here? <laughs> like here of all places. So I said to him, oh, look, it's so great you're coming along. Why do you come along here each week? And he said, well, I just don't find verse by verse preaching and teaching anywhere in the Catholic Church. And I'm like, well, you know, you could change that, right? <laughs> you're the guy preaching and teaching in that. But I kind of, it wasn't my place to kind of tell him what to do. But, but our church for him had been the best place he could find to hear God's Word taught. And usually after the service, we'd have a brief chat. He'd come up and say, oh, that was helpful. He was really encouraging, always encouraging about the message that I was kind of saying, which kind of troubled me. The Catholic priest is really happy with what I'm saying. Am I, am I saying the right thing? Like, I'm like, hang on a minute. This, this, is a, this is kind of a bit weird, right? And it troubled me because what the Bible says and what the Roman Catholic Church teaches are very different. Now, as I say that, my hunch is that for many of us, Calling out the Roman Catholic Church like that makes us feel uncomfortable. You're like, oh, Rowan, did you, did you have to do that? You know, I've got friends that are Roman Catholics, and you might be here tonight and a Roman Catholic, and I don't really like that idea of people being called out, because it does make us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it, when we call out other people. When we're putting forth what we believe, it's kind of okay, but the moment we, we put out that someone else might be wrong, well, we, we crush this invisible cultural threshold, 
where the world around us, even Christians around us go, hey, you shouldn't have done that. That was a line too far. You don't get to call out the things that are wrong. And for many of us, we, we kind of hold back from pointing out things that are wrong. Well, it wasn't until about one year in that I crossed that threshold with this priest. I was preaching through Mark 14, which talks about the Lord's Supper. And I was explaining that the, the, the bread and the wine or grape juice are symbols, a visible word of what Jesus has done at the cross. And I went on to explain how the Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, that the blood, the bread and the, and the wine become the body of Jesus, was wrong. They're just symbols. They're a visible word. And then I also talked about Martin Luther's view, which is that um, something mysterious and magic kind of happens inside the, the bread and the wine um, when we're having the Lord's Supper. It's called consubstantiation, right? It's called that because it's a con. That's how I remember it, right? And I made that joke, and I thought that was fair, and I was calling it out, not, not harshly, but saying, hey, I don't think it's right, and explained why. Anyway, after the service, he came up to me, and he said, look, he really appreciated my careful unpacking of the passage, but that he wasn't happy with me putting forward that some views were wrong. He was happy with me putting forward what my view was, but he looked at me and said, what I don't appreciate is when you call out other theological positions as wrong. None of us want to be the bad guy, do we? None of us like telling others we think they're wrong. Maybe some of us do like telling others they're wrong. Maybe that's an issue you need to come and chat with me about later, <laughs> right? But if you're for something, then you're going to be against something else, aren't you? Like, if you're for the Springboks, there's going to be some people that you're against. I take it that's going to be New Zealand pretty soon, right? <laughs> if you're for the truth, you're going to need to point out falsehoods when they're masquerading as the truth. You're just going to need to. And if you've been with us throughout this book of 2 Peter so far, then you'll know what Peter is saying to us here are serious and urgent words for us. He's about to die, and he, this one who's been with Jesus, who's seen his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he's seen him changed on the mountain at transfiguration. He saw this future scene shown to us, a preview of what it will be when Jesus comes back. He's passing on his final pep talk, his last words, grounded in the historical reality of what he saw and heard from the Lord Jesus himself. And he's calling us to take the Christian life seriously. It really matters what you do here and now. He said this in verse 5 of chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort, Peter says. The one who walked with Jesus says this. Make every effort. He's aware, he's aware how important it is, not just for those who want to be a bit religious, but for everyone who trusts in Jesus to hold on to the truth he's given us, for everyone to recognize how important it is to live your life in light of Jesus' return. He tells us in verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 9, The person who claims to be a Christian and doesn't have these qualities, he says, is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sin. It's not that living this way earns our forgiveness and earns our place as Christians. You can't earn your way to be good enough for God. No one can do that. Jesus is the only one who's good enough for God. But by persevering in trusting in the Word of God and letting God shape our lives and living that out, means we get to continue in the saving work of Jesus, not forgetting Him and leaving Him behind, but loving 
being part of his family, his people, his kingdom. The Apostle Peter tells those who trust in Jesus, keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep holding to the truth. Because as we saw last week, the news of Jesus isn't some cleverly invented story or myth. It's the historical truth. He encourages us. You can trust his word. You can trust the word of scripture. Remember, he pointed out that the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus coming again, pointing forward to what God said on that mountain. This is my son whom I love. With him I am am well pleased. That coming together of those two Old Testament passages from Psalms and Isaiah to say, this is the promised king who's coming. Peter knows Jesus is coming back and he's convinced of it. And so with his last words, he encourages those who trust Jesus to keep going. And he encourages us by giving us in chapter 2 a massive warning. Massive, massive warning. It's like a big sticker that says, beware. See, while you can trust the eyewitness accounts of those who really saw what went on, you can trust them. And you can trust the scriptures that point forward to what God had said that he spoke through the prophets. You can't trust everyone who teaches the scriptures. We say it again, you can't trust everyone who teaches the scriptures. Now, I'm aware what I'm saying tonight is that God's Word is saying, you can't trust me because I'm a teacher of the Scriptures. Now, do you listen to that? If you can't trust me, then can you trust me to say you can't trust me? Is this like an inception thing? You're like, oh, I don't know. But what this is saying is this. Point number one, false teaching will come. Point number one tonight, false teaching will come. Look at verse one of chapter two. There were indeed false prophets among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they'll bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. We live in an age and a world where the only thing that we can call false is the idea that there's absolute truth. Do you see what I mean? It's fine for you to have an idea, and you can be you, you do you, you have your truth, I'll have mine. But as soon as someone says, no, no, this is true for everyone, it's like, oh, hate speech. You can't say that. You can't say what's true for me. You don't have the authority to do that. And the world around us hates us calling out truth, particularly absolute truth. What Peter is saying is this message about Jesus, these words of Scripture, they are true for everyone who believes them and for everyone who doesn't. And that's what Peter's saying. And that means if, if someone disagrees with them, then as good intentioned as they are, Peter's saying that they're mistaken, they're false. And to be wrong about Jesus, says Peter, is disastrous. Now, in the Old Testament times, it wasn't just God's prophets who were speaking. Sometimes we think that God was speaking through certain people, but there was a whole host of other people that were claiming to speak from God. Deuteronomy 13 um, tells us of what we do when people are claiming to be speaking from God, performing wonders and signs. As Moses stands on the edge of the promised land with God's people about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy 13, this is what he says. If a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or wonder to you, and that sign or wonder he has promised to you comes about, 
But he says, let's follow other gods which you've not known and let's worship them. Do not listen to that prophet's words or that dream. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You must follow the Lord your God and fear Him. You must keep His commands and listen to Him. You must worship Him and remain faithful to Him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he has urged rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery to turn you from the way your Lord your God has commanded you to walk. You must purge the evil from you. And you hear that, and you're like, well, that's pretty full on, right? But God is saying, so important is it to, to make sure that when this prophet speaks, that he speaks what is truly God's word, and is pointing people to Jesus, not to Jesus, but to God and what he said previously, then if they've got that wrong, if they're pointing to another God, they ought to be killed. False prophecy claiming to be speaking from God, but actually not, was an incredibly serious thing. And what Peter is saying here is that false teaching today is like the false prophecy of the Old Testament. Prophecy in the New Testament, as an aside, kind of seems to look a little different from the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 14, check it out later, we hear that people are prophesying in the church, speaking of, I think, um, applying truths they know about God to the specific situation that they're in. And that prophecy is weighed. The elders of the church weigh it to go, yep, we think this is right or not, you know, there's no kind of line there that if they're wrong, stone them. I mean, does anyone have a word from God today? Everyone's like, mm, not me. Because <laughs> if I found out I'm wrong, I'd be stoned. No, that was not, not happening in that sense then. But Peter equates Old Testament prophecy with New Testament teaching. There's this similarity here. right? While the false teacher isn't immediately put to death like the false prophet was, the future the false teacher faces is far worse than just death. It's eternal destruction. And Peter then gives us three case studies of what happens when people rebel against God's and His Word. The first one is the angels who rebel in, in Genesis 6. The next one is the whole ancient world of Noah's time that gets wiped out in the flood when everyone turns their back on God. And, and, and the third one is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who were so focused on their own self-pleasure and indulgence that God wiped the whole cities out and Lot escaped by the singeing butt as he kind of ran away and they, you know, sulfur came down on them. All three of these examples God, Peter talks about are examples where the people who rebelled against God were destroyed for setting up their own way, for pretending to be God themselves. And Peter tells us they exist as examples, reminding us of the reality of the judgment of God. Now, judgment such a heavy topic, Right? Christians, we're people that are excited. We're about love. And, you know, I come to church to be encouraged and built up. And I come on and hear Peter saying, hey, you know, to rebel against God, to, to say the wrong thing about God deliberately and lead people astray means I'm going to head up in, in hell. You're like, that's not, that's not cool. It's not really what I wanted to hear today. It's not what I got up today going, woo, I, I need to hear this. But you do, and so do I. Because the future for the false teacher and those that listen to them is disastrous. Speaking to the false teachers, Peter tells us in verse 12, these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. 
Peter, in his urgency and his seriousness about how to continue in the Christian life, is saying false teaching is incredibly dangerous. Don't flirt with it. Don't muck around with it. Don't entertain it. False teaching is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous for the false teacher. And it's dangerous for those who are taught by it. So how do we recognize false teaching? How do we work out whether it is or isn't false teaching? Well, in the passage, um, we're going to have a look now at the anatomy of false teaching. That's point number two tonight. The anatomy of false teaching. And this point has six points under it. They're short, so don't be like, you know, we're in for the long haul. And remember, there's question time at the end, so if you have questions as we go through, feel free to text them in. It'd be super helpful. Um, Point number A, the anatomy of false teaching. False teaching is popular. Did you read that back earlier on? That many, many, there will be, um, many, verse 2, will follow the depraved ways and the truth will be maligned because of them. Just because lots of people follow something doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Just because lots of people go, oh, hey, there's lots of people doing this, doesn't mean it, it, it's, it's right. We must not judge whether it's true or false by the, what, the number of people who kind of vote for it or do it. False teaching is popular. Secondly, point B, false teaching is deceptive. The very, false, the very first amount of false teaching in the Bible came from the lips of a serpent in the Garden of Eden. As Adam and Eve stood there and looked at the fruit of the tree of a knowledge of good and evil, Satan slithers up and says, you won't surely die if you eat of this. God just doesn't want you to become like him. In other words, there's a better future for you if you just take and eat this that God's holding back. God's holding out on you. I know you want more. Just take it, eat it. It'll be so good. And Eve takes and eats and gives it to Adam and he's like right on and he eats it as well. And then the whole world is in sin. False teaching is deceptive. It leads us away from the truth and away from the only place forgiveness and salvation can be found in Jesus. It's popular, it's deceptive. Point C, it's boastful. Look at verse 18. For by uttering boastful empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. See, false teaching claims to know more than what God has said. It's boastful. Just like the serpent in the garden. Did God really say, I've got a better view of what God said to you than you do? And it seduces people into accepting as freedom what God has said is off bounds. Did God really say, there's more goodness to the world than God's allowed you to experience. Come and experience more of what God just says in His Word. I've got another word from God. I've got another view of God that will help you to live a full life. And it boasts in the greatness of where they're at. This is the way to have a spiritual life. And what happens? The promise of freedom lands us in slavery. We get enslaved to ourselves because we put ourselves on the throne and we want to keep serving ourselves and that's the only thing we can do. It's the same with all sin. All sin is a promise to be free of all constraints and to run life my way. But all it does is put myself in the center and needing Jesus' forgiveness. The particular false teaching that Peter has in mind here um, seems to be also driven by greed. Driven by greed. That's point D. Yeah. Driven by greed. Look at verse 3. 
they will exploit you in their greed. In verse 14, they seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. This false teaching that he's talking about here comes out of a desire to have more, to gain more for themselves than what they teach. Come to Jesus and have a life that's richer and fuller and full of wealth and health and prosperity. Have you heard people say that to you? That you could have a, a deeper relationship with God, a more spiritual relationship with God, a relationship with God that's focused on, on the power of His Spirit that changes you and has this amazing kind of one another relationship. It's a desire to have more than what God has necessarily offered. Yes, God's Word promises that in the age to come, there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old orders of things will be done away with. But in the present, God's Word says we'll be suffering. Life will be hard. This age is the age of sacrifice. It's the age of putting others before ourselves, of, of being persecuted for the sake of following Jesus. If, if our Savior died, do you think we're going to have a cruisy life? If the one we followed was pinned to a cross. Do you think life's going to be easy following Him? But greed drives false teaching. God wants you to enjoy life. He wants us to be enjoying it more. And it promotes a version of Christianity that's more about comfort and about prosperity than it is about God's kingdom. One of the phrases we use often at Auckland EV and here at Uni Church is that we are a battleship, not a cruise ship. This church is, is a battleship, not a cruise ship. The cruise ship view of church is, hey, I come to church to sit back and enjoy the, all the great things to be kind of fed with, great teaching, great music, kind of great friendships. It's kind of like my, my Christian club where I get everything that I want while this church takes me to my holiday destination called heaven. And I just cruise on in on the deck of the cruise ship called Uni Church, and I arrive and be like, ah, that was good. Now comes main course. The battleship view of church is that we're at war which is exactly what Peter says. That Satan is roaring around like a lion, trying to take one another out. That the rulers and powers of this world are actually trying to get us to walk away from God, to reject Him, and that is Satan's desire. We are at war. And so the moment we think about, what can I get now? How much can I hoard? It's such a cruise ship mentality as you dock into different ports. Like, what can I get from this city? What can I get from that city? Whereas the battleship is going, man, I don't care how much stuff, have I got enough stuff on right now to be able to do the job I need to do so that we can win this war, so that we can get to the end, so that what, the victory that we know that will happen, Jesus standing as the King of kings and Lord of lords will come in and as many people as possible can be standing in Him to the end. Sometimes the enemy comes in dressed in our team colors, but really is working for the other team. Greed, getting more, that's their motive. So many times we've seen people come amongst us at uni church and be like, oh, hey, I'd love to chat with you and read the Bible with you. And actually they're trying to take people away from Jesus and into really what is a cult. To see you give to this guy in Korea or somewhere else across the world and, and kind of go there. I know people that that were actually considering traveling to Korea to, to be with this kind of Korean church leader and just got kind of dazed by the reality that they twisted the Word of God and greed was driving all of it for them, that there's more, that I've not got this, and, and for, the, for the false teachers saying, hey, come and give us all these funds. False teaching is driven by greed. Point number E, false teaching leads us to immorality. Look at 14. 
these false teachers has eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. Pretty positive picture, hey? Verse 18, For by uttering boastful empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery. People who've barely escaped from those who live in error. In other words, there's people around that are like, well, man, it's hard, but I've seen who Jesus is and I want to follow him. But they come along and go, no, go back to your old life. Go back to that life that said, oh, it's fine to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. It's fine to enjoy life. God wants you to enjoy that. You know, don't be too full on. You don't want to be too radical as a Christian, you know. God doesn't want that. He wants you to fit in with the world around you. He made the world and and they're like, man, I, I thought I was giving my life to Jesus, but you're saying I don't kind of totally need to? The encouragement to just indulge in the world around us. Well, that's the way we, we use our money, the way, what we do with our eyes, what we do with our bodies. It's fine just to, to watch some porn. You know, you've got to get some idea of how this stuff works at some point. It's fine to, to be with someone who's not your spouse. It's, it's fine to prioritize your comfort over God's kingdom. I mean, we're only human, Right? Peter says lies. Satan says, come on. You want to live, don't you? The truth of the gospel recognizes that we are broken, that we're not going to live perfect lives, that we are sinful. It says, come to Jesus as you are, but never stay as you are. God's word calls us to wear out the family colors, to add to our knowledge goodness and to goodness self-control, to live like our Savior because His way is right. The truth of the gospel lovingly calls out our rebellion against God and our sin. It's worth asking, what false teaching have you adopted with regard to your sexuality, with regard to your beliefs about how many ways there are to God, with your, with your views on what you do with your eyes and your hands, with the way you think about your comfort and what you're living for and your job? It's not a popular idea that God judges. And sometimes our temptation to fit in with the world around us with that immorality is to pull back from the reality of what God's Word says about judgment. To kind of water it down, kind of help God out a little bit with, with some PR by toning back on His warnings. And that's the, the final point here, point F. False teaching denies the Lordship of Jesus. It denies the Lordship of Jesus. 2 Peter 2.1 says this, They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. What the transfiguration showed, Peter, James and John, without a doubt, is that Jesus is the king of the universe. He's coming back again. No matter who you think you are and how great life is going, we'll all need to stand before him on that final day. But if we deny that he's coming back, if we say to people, oh, it's okay, just, it's cool to live the way you want, your truth's good for you, that's fine. We're lying to them and we're denying the reality of Jesus coming back. Yes, we ought to do it carefully, not thinking that we're any better than anyone else. But it's the first sign that we've started to believe false teaching as we've taken on some form of sentimental Christianity. The kind of Christianity that says, look, it's okay, as long as we're just all warm and nice and we kind of talk about God's love together. We don't recognize the reality of the judgment of God. I need to say, this is so prevalent amongst Christians and churches here in New Zealand. So often I hear church pastors giving the call for unity for Christians and for Christian leaders. I went to a thing recently where um, we were all handed a rock on the way in, and we all held this rock, and they said, imagine this new movement, how great it would be if we were all united, and let's hold on to the rock and be united. And I'm like, 
what's the rock? Like, what, 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 united in what? Like, it's just, it's being united for united's sake. That There's no kind of clarity around what is central and what we're trying to achieve and what God's Word says. It's like, don't worry about the distinctives. Those things don't matter as long as we are together. Friends, Satan loves us and he loves it when we think that. Don't hold on to any truth too tightly. Don't hold on to what God says in his word. Don't be so academic and keep thinking through the scriptures. Don't work hard to understand who God is and how he's made himself clear. Just just kind of look at his love and be united in that. Definitely don't call anyone to repentance. Definitely don't tell anyone about his judgment that's coming. Let's just all be united and, and pick some solution. It doesn't matter what solution. Friends, this idea is crazy. It's kind of, imagine for a moment that you, you go to the doctor, you've got some problem, you've, uh, there seems to be something not right with my body, you go into the doctor, you sit down, they say, what, what, what's wrong? You explain what's wrong, and they go, ah, oh, yeah, okay, yep, I've seen that a lot. Um, what medication would you like to have? And you're like, well, <laughs> what's going to work here? That doesn't matter which one. Like, look, there's different things. What, what would you like to do? What, what sort of you know, solution would you like to have? Just pick one. You're like, well, can I have one that tastes good? I don't have to take too often, that's really cheap. Yeah, we'll give you that. Will it fix me? It doesn't matter about whether it'll fix the problem or not. As long as you've got a solution that you're happy in, and that's great, you know? That's stupid. It's not going to fix my problem. And if we're united just in being united's sake, without recognizing our problem as sinners who need forgiveness of the incredible nature of who God is and how He's revealed Himself to us, it's as ludicrous as a doctor saying, hey, just take whatever you want. The Bible keeps saying we can't think that way because God has spoken. He's given us his word. And so Peter is warning them and us, don't drift along into the thinking that everything will be all right. Peter's reminding them and us that in the past, God did not spare people who rebelled against him, who taught different things from what he had said. He knows that's going to be the case for the future, that God will hold to account every false teacher, that they'll have to stand before the creator of the universe as he comes back. And he's made it very, very clear. So friends, do not drift into sentimentality. God is the judge, and we'll all be held to account. That's why we care about what we teach here at EV. So we work through books of the Bible. So I want to point you to what the Scriptures are saying so that you can check what the pastors up the front are saying with the Scriptures. Don't believe just our words. Not at all. Believe the eyewitnesses. Believe God's Word in, in, his, in his Bible. That's the ultimate authority. And if at points we say things that don't line up, come and talk to us. Tell us. It's super important. We want to chat through that because we sit under the authority of God's Word just like everyone else. And it matters what we say. It also matters... Who you listen to? It's another thing to say that we need to be careful who we listen to. With a world of preaching so prevalent on the internet, you can go and tune in to different preachers and hear what they have to say. And sometimes there's some really helpful things. And other times, in the same talk maybe even, there's some things that are really unhelpful. And we just come along and we think, ah, you know, that's cool, that was really good. And we start believing things without actually checking them carefully. And we also, with the internet preaching phenomenon, we don't don't get to see their lives. One of the things we love here at Uni Church is that you get to see us as preachers. You can come and talk to us whenever. You can contact us and chat through stuff. You get to see our lives and our families around. You, you get to do that because it's important that we actually walk the talk. But you don't know that with others. These false teachers, they're pulling people to a different walk. 
So let me ask you, who is it that you are listening to? Keep coming back to the scriptures. Keep testing it, discussing it together, talking about it together. But who is Peter actually talking to in this passage? Have you noticed that? As you look through it, it's not the false teachers that he's saying, look out, you guys are going to be smashed, right? It's not even those who've been deceived by the false teaching that he's talking to. Peter is addressing at this point the mature believers in the church. He's addressing the ones who know the truth and are established in it. I take it, that's most of us here tonight. He's targeting us because the temptation for us as mature believers is to go, oh yeah, I've heard this before, yeah, 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 there's all this thinking, blah, blah, blah. I want to go into some new idea or this new thing to have more power or more reach or more effectiveness. And we kind of leave the things of the Bible aside at times. The temptation can be to think, yeah, I'm a mature Christian, so I'm going to flirt around on the edges of theology. I'm going to explore different types and think, oh, what about this? And I really like having this different view. And imagine we have that and a whole heap of pride comes in and where we end up walking away from the truth and walking into the arms of hell. Don't become complacent out of a fear of being arrogant. Think, oh, I'm not going to call out when I say wrong in a loving way. Don't hold back on calling a spade a spade. Do it in love but actually call out the truth. And as we do it, there's one more danger I want to bring to our attention. This is point number three tonight. It's the danger of experientialism. The danger of experientialism. I think this is really one of our greatest risks. It's the idea that it doesn't really matter what you think. It doesn't really matter what your doctrines are. What matters is that you've had some sort of experience with the living Lord Jesus. You might have had a a dream or a vision. You've heard a word from God. You've had an incredible experience where God showed you something and you realized something. And then you go and chat to someone else and they've had an experience too. And it's like, hey, this is what we unite around. We've had these experiences of God. We've got these feelings that God is leading us this certain direction. And this feeling is great and strong. Now, experientialism is a reaction by many people against what so often we've perceived as a kind of dry and anti-intellectual Christianity. Um, sorry, is a dry and intellectual Christianity, right? So where people come along and go, like, oh, we've got to know what the Word says. And I was like, oh, you're so kind of PhD-ish. Oh, you haven't got any relationship with Jesus and you just, you just care about the grammar of the text and you get excited about learning Aramaic because there's like 14 chapters in the Bible that are in it and you're like, oh, I can speak Aramaic and your head's exploding and you don't care about how you're living and they're like, oh, that's wrong. I want to have a real experience, a real relationship with Jesus, right? And there's part of me that's like, yes, that's me too. I want to have a real relationship with Jesus. But there's a naivety that comes with it that it means leaving aside the Word of God and focusing on that experiential relationship. This kind of thinking, again, is so prevalent in Christianity today. It's almost the main view I come across in in wider Christian circles, and it's it's a right concern to have about having a real relationship. But it answers that concern for passion by minimizing knowing and understanding God's Word. That stuff doesn't matter because you just need to be passionate. You just need to have an experience of God. You just need God to speak wondrously in your life. And what we end up doing, by definition, is setting up another authority other than God. This promotes false teachers. God told me this is His plan for your life. I really want to have an experience where a prophet speaks into my life and tells me what my future is going to be like. Someone says, I felt God say this to me, and I felt a peace in my heart about going this direction. 
The word of God, Peter says, is the very word of God. It's God's word itself. And what happens when we move into this experientialism is we replace the word of God with my latest feeling of inkling, with no place of checking what God has actually said. A number of years ago, I was chatting with a youth pastor in a church, a Bible-believing evangelical church here in Auckland. She was the head of youth in that church. And she told me that she'd been wrestling with an attraction that she had to women. And she's like, I feel attracted to women, not men. I'm really wrestling with this. And I know what God's word says. And then she said, but one day I had this dream where I heard God clearly say, it's okay. It's okay. As long as you're marrying the woman, it's okay. And she's like, it was so freeing. It so allowed my relationship to, with God to be one of grace rather than one of law. And she's using all these right words applied wrongly. So she stopped wrestling with that. She followed through with it. She is now a he, and Jesus is a thing of her past. Friends, when we walk away from the word of God, when we put ourselves in that position, we become false teachers, and we believe things that aren't necessarily true. We must test it against the Scriptures. The day I asked Sarah to marry me was a pretty exciting day for us. Uh, I wanted to do something different and special, uh, and so just beforehand, I didn't want Sarah to guess that I was going to ask her to marry me on that day, so I took her ring shopping uh, the night before. It was late night shopping before Christmas, and we found a ring that she liked, and so we said, okay, let's put it, like, a hold on that just for a week. So she's like, there's no way Rowan would ever propose without the actual ring being there. So we put a hold on this ring that she liked. I'd already bought the ring, by the way. Not that one, but another one. And so I did that... <laughs> So that she wouldn't be thinking what we'd be doing the next day. Maybe I'm deceptive. I don't know. Check it. Um, but then the next day, we're like, hey, we're planning on going on this kind of boat ride. And what we'd done is I'd borrowed one of those, you know, those aluminium dinghies. They're like about, you know, three meters long. Not very big. Got a little seven horsepower motor on the back. I borrowed that from a mate. And um, we went into this kind of lake type area, put the boat in. We're just going for a day out kind of in this lake area. Sarah didn't really know that area we're in very well. And so we jump in. We've got our little picnic staff. We're all excited. She's thinking, nah, no way Rowan's going to propose at this point. So off we go. We're like, nee, kind of going out, looking around. Um, it was tiny, tiny little boat, right? Uh, and then we come around the corner, and she kind of looks up, and there's the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Because I'd put the boat in, in one of the harbour sections way back, that came into the middle of Sydney Harbour. We're in Sydney at that point in time. And then so we kind of went under the harbour bridge. She's like, whoa, this is incredible. Still thinking I'm not going to propose. I kind of parked the boat right next to the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge, just between them, as kind of these big tourist boats come past. Now the boat's like... <laughs> anyway, Sarah's like, hey, I'm starting to feel a bit sick. Can we move? And I'm like, hang on a second, I've got a question. <laughs> So I ask her to marry me. She says, yes, it was awesome, great. She's feeling a bit seedy. Then we zip off. We're going to have lunch at this island called Shark Island. Right? I had a plan B. Okay, she said no. Push her off. No, <laughs> kidding. So we went to Shark Island. It was all great. That's right out at the, at the end of the harbour. And, um, and so there's kind of other big boats going around. It was a little bit scary. So I was like, are we allowed to do this? I'm like, yeah, it's a boat. You can be in water in a boat. It's all good. So then we get there. We have lunch. It was a great afternoon. And then we're kind of heading back. And the thing I didn't realize when we were heading back was, it's really easy to navigate when you're coming from upstream out into the big harbor. But remembering which part of the harbor we were in going back was real hard. And this is the days before you had smartphones. Like, I had no GPS. GPS was a cool thing that the military had back in 2001. Actually, 2000. Right? And it was, like, pretty cool then. Uh, to have, and we didn't have anything like that. And I'm like, man, so we're going along, and I picked the wrong estuary to go up. And Sydney Harbour's pretty crazy. Look, here's an image of Sydney Harbour for you I prepared earlier. Right? We were up at this point near George's head, and we had to get back to where the cross was, which is where that was. But 
We had no phone. We had no way. I tried to work out how to do it. I went down the wrong one. And then finally, in my wisdom, I'm like, it's okay. I brought what every person needs when you don't have a smartphone. This, a street directory. <laughs> I'm like, at least I can navigate with some sort of map. Because the problem was, there are no street signs in a harbour. There's no like, hey, take the second left and you get towards this town. It's just all water. And, and so I opened up the street directory and that's the map that was there and worked out where we were going wrong. And Sarah's sitting at the front of the boat. It started to get a bit choppy and she's trying to hold on. Actually, I think it was this street directory. And, um, and so she's trying to hold on as we kind of worked the way back. And we got back because we had this clarity of the plan of God for Sydney Harbour. <laughs> Friends, if we throw out the Bible... We throw out God's plan for our lives and his plan for his world and we have no way of getting back to God. We have no way of knowing who he is when we throw out his word. He's made himself clear in his word. He's made it clear so we can know him and know what matters. In Romans chapter 10, Paul tells us this. How then can they call on him they've not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful the feet of those who bring good news. And that word good news is the word the gospel. It's not just any news, it's the news of who Jesus is, his life, death, resurrection and ascension. That's what Paul is talking about, them preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not talking about some prophetic word about you're going to have a Porsche when you turn 28. Or that your life, you know, you're going to, make this amazing, you're going to meet this amazing person, they're going to have blue eyes and long toenails and it's going to be great. Right? Who cares about that? When the creator of the universe has come and made himself known and says, do you see who I am? I'm the solution to your sin. Without me, you are looking down the barrel of hell. There is no other means to find life that is in Christ other than the news, the gospel, his word. But then I hear some people say, well, what about the spirit of God? We don't want to put God in a box and say he can't speak this way. Well, it's the spirit of God who uses this gospel to bring us to faith. It's the Spirit of God, Peter told us in the last chapter, that the prophets were carried along by as they spoke, that God was speaking through them. God the Spirit doesn't work independently of God the Father and God the Son. It's not like you know, God the Father is saying, here's my plan for the world, and God the Spirit's like, yes, but you need a Mercedes and long toenail girlfriend. Right? It doesn't work like that. They're, they're together on this. They're together in what they're saying. The Spirit's role is to point to Jesus and say, have you seen him? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords over all. A number of years ago, and this is the last story I'll tell you tonight, maybe. I met um, a pastor from a Muslim country. He'd gone, undergone massive persecution for his beliefs, been bashed. All sorts of things had happened because he converted from Islam to Christianity. And I asked him, how did you come to know Jesus? You had a family that wanted nothing to, know, nothing to do with Jesus at all. You're living in a country that wants nothing to know with Jesus. It's not like you can just find someone on the street corner and go, hey, come to Jesus. I'm like, how did you come to know Jesus? And he said, I actually had a dream one night. And in that dream, I just saw a man's face that was glowing white. And he said, I, I just knew it was Jesus. I knew his name was Jesus. I knew he was the one who had made me and he was worthy of my worship. He said, and from that day on, whenever I went to Muslim prayers, five times a day facing Mecca, as I would bow down, supposed to be saying my Muslim prayers, I would sing the only Christian song that I knew, which is Jingle Bells. (laughs) 
right? To him, that's the only Western song he'd ever heard, and Western kind of world was Christian. And so he's going, oh, I'm worshipping Jesus by singing, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Like, and that's, so he, at this point, he said, look, I, I, I trusted Jesus, but I didn't know who he was, what he'd done. I, I, I yearned to know more until a number of years later, someone gave me a Bible, and he said, then I really saw Jesus. I really heard God speak to me. What he'd said and done, who he was, what he was doing in the future, was like my world lit up. And it struck me as I was chatting to him, I was actually interviewing him in front of church, that in the Western world, so many people who have the Bible go seeking experiences and dreams and visions and words from God as if they're better. But the one who doesn't have God's word, who has the visions, says, this is where we hear God speak. Sometimes, friends, I think we're like entitled brats with the Word of God. We have it in our hands, but we want more from God. We want something better, something more powerful. And the false teachers say, yes, come and let me tell you what that is. And Peter says, we were there. We saw it. We heard it. We wrote it down. This is what you need to believe. What the Old Testament prophets spoke forward that has now been fulfilled. This is all you need. Friends, if we're going to continue in the Christian life, we need to know what's true and what's not. We need to be alert to test things against what the Scriptures say, not as judgmental bigots, but as people under the Word of God ourselves, seeking to know God's will and apply it to our lives. We need to be alert to teaching that sounds like, oh, that's nice, that feels like comfortable, that feels like a thing I'd like to have in the future, that, that's greedy and that, that feels like a, I get to experience immorality in a way that, my, my, my old nature wants, but my new nature says I shouldn't have. We need to go against the current of that world because it's so deceptive. It's ideas on, on gender, on freedom of speech, on hate speech, the way that we sometimes hold one part of God's character, like his love, over and against the other parts, like his justice, and say, oh, his love wins in the end. Friends, that is false teaching. We need to wake ourselves up from this sentimentality and experientialism to listen to the word of God. See, the more you embrace the pursuit of truth in the Scriptures, the more you actually be someone who notices when things are off, the more you'll learn to be gracious in the way you discuss what God has said in His Word with others, the more you'll find true freedom. That's why Peter says in in chapter 1, verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. The only antidote to false teaching is teaching and trusting the truth. The only antidote to false teaching is teaching and trusting the truth. And this is what Peter tells us in verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In other words, his word here to us is God's grace. He knows how to bring those who want to trust him to himself and hold you in. And he does it through his word by saying, trust me, keep living it out. As it feels like false teachers win, that they get what they want, that they enjoy the comforts of this world, he tells us, trust God, judgment is coming. But don't be so cowardly that you stand back and never call it out lovingly. Don't be so prideful that you always step forward and go, I know what's right, I can never be wrong. No, come to the truth of the gospel and let it give you life. Test everything against it and trust that holding to the truth, speaking the truth in love, God's justice will come. Do not be like these false teachers, Peter says. And do not listen to them. 
Eternity is what is at stake. Let's pray. Lord, it's incredible to think that we who have turned our backs on you can be forgiven. That we can stand forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, it's crazy when we think that there is more to be had than experiencing your love shown at the cross in Jesus. It's crazy when we think that there, there, is, there is more to hold on to than what you've made known. That the, We're sorry for the times, Lord, that we have believed things that add to your word, that are deceptive, that pull us away from Jesus. Would you help us as a community to encourage one another to keep sitting under your word? Would you keep giving us a sense of the brilliance that the God of the universe has spoken to us in his word? Lord, we are so sorry for the times that we devalue your word, that we live as people who think that there is something better, something more. By your spirit and through your word, would you keep showing us how important it is to know you and to love you and to listen to you. Would you help us to call out false teachers? Would you help us as a church to make sure that your word is that ultimate authority, that we, that we work together to sit under it? And Lord, would you help us to be bold in your world, to speak the truth in love, to call out when there are different views and not just shrink back, but to point people to your son and trust that you will bring people to yourself and that you are just. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. Let it be that warning for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.